Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, and this is an incredible honour for me, uh, the global doyen of Rugby League history, Professor Tony Collins, is here with me. Uh, I, you know, Before I say hello to Tony, I really needed some help with this English chapter that we're putting together, and so who better to go to? So, uh, Tony, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me, Michael. Uh, long-time listener, big fan, and I think it's just a, it's an incredible project that you've you've undertaken, and it's um, it, it's really a service to anybody who's interested in rugby league history or sports history in general. Because Super League was a pivotal moment, not just for for rugby league, but for other sports too. Oh well, thank you so much. No idea how cool it is to hear that from you. Uh, I approached you basically because I wanted some background for. The, the English chapter we're working on, but I thought our listeners would get a real treat out of hearing your thoughts on this as well. So, uh, I, you know, this this is an interview that we're going to be releasing as a show, but I'm, I'm just going to basically throw random questions at you because there's a lot of ground that I need to cover in this English chapter because, you know, I've, I've done so much on the Australian side of things, but it was a pretty, like, seismic change for English rugby league as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in a similar way to Australia, it was, Super League was this kind of culmination of a lot of things that had bring, been brewing for a long time. And I think also, sadly, from a British point of view, it was the you know, the final confirmation that uh, uh, when it came to International Rugby League, um, Australia uh, ruled the roost uh, and nobody was going to challenge that. Well, that kind of brings me to where I want to start, which is where our story is starting uh, with 1982, the Invincibles. So, anytime you read like a history of recent British rugby league, 1982 seems to be this year zero where like a lot of uh, stories will be framed around it and everything that happened beyond that and everything that led up to it. And it just seems to me that it holds such an outsized importance in English rugby league more so than it does from the Australian side. Yeah, I guess that was possible because um, in Australia, because things happened slowly and over time, they weren't as noticeable as what they were in Britain when in 1982. I mean, it was, um, you know, the, the last tour was in 1978 where, you know, the, the Kangaroos won 2 1, Great Britain um, pushed them fairly close, but it wasn't clear how far the gap was. However, in 1979, when the, the Lions toured Australia and got completely smashed 3 0. Um, the writing was really on the wall how far behind British rugby league was compared to Australian. But in Britain, because you know, there was no satellite TV, uh, you only saw replays of the matches a year later, you didn't really realise how big the gap had grown. So when the Kangaroos arrived in 1982, um, 
well, it was like visitors from another planet. They were um, nobody in Britain, apart from any anyone who'd been lucky enough to go to Australia, had ever seen players like you know, Mal Meninga, uh, Eric Groth, Wayne Pierce. Um, so it, the the shock of seeing players playing rugby league at what was then seen as an incredible level um had a, a, an impact on british rugby league that you know it's difficult to think of um similar events in other sports in soccer in, in england had been beaten 6-3 by hungary in 1953 and this was a watershed moment for english soccer but you know soccer's a big world and the you know the relationship between england and hungary was basically non-existent whereas obviously you know England and Australia in rugby league had, um, well, in those days, 75 years, now obviously over 100, 75 years of history where, you know, it had been fairly neck and neck, particularly since the nineteen since the 1940s. So to be absolutely trounced and beaten out of sight by a team of supreme athletes who were, you know, all of whom could pass, run and handle the ball like the best three quarters was... Uh, um, it, it was literally like you know visitors from another planet bringing you a new civilization. And I, I can't remember where I read this, but some of the talk was even when Australia were winning, you know, it had been ten years or twelve years at that point since England had beaten Australia in a series, and for much of the decade before that, Australia were on top. the The thinking was always like, well, yeah, I mean, they're winning this time, but. We're still the masters of of the skill and and the beauty of rugby league, and it seems like this was a real watershed where you couldn't say that anymore. Yeah, I, I think that was what because the teams, the teams were tri- the the British team was changed radically for each Test match um, because the usual um, excuse or the usual re- reason that was uh, analysis that was given for the defeat of, of British teams was that um, that they weren't playing traditional British football. Um, or that they didn't believe in the British shirt anymore, which is just, uh, ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was this idea that the Australians are all bash and barge. They they may be fit, but they don't have the the ball handling skills that British players have, um, which was you know certainly true in the nineteen fifties, but really disappeared. But you know by the time you get to the nineteen sixties, you've got players like Johnny Raper playing in the pack. Um, then it's it's a completely different world. Um, and so, you know, so 1982 was explained by many sort of traditional rugby league supporters by, you know, Britain isn't playing its traditional game. We need more ball handling forwards, tricky halfbacks and things like that. But the reality was that, A, those type of players weren't really being produced by Britain anymore. Uh, and secondly, that, you know, it's ridiculous it, um, when you think about it to imagine that you could get, you know, better ball handlers than Peter Sterling or Wally Lewis for example, as a halfback. So so there was a lot of that. And I think that that often happens with teams when they're defeated and they don't really know how to respond. They kind of say, let's go back to good old uh, basic virtues and how we've always played the game before. And that was tried and it, and it just simply didn't work. And a lot of the talk was also that Australia had brought in this national coaching scheme in the mid-60s and that had started to lead to this gulf between the two teams and... Great Britain uh, implemented something similar in in the years afterwards, but I mean, surely the the problems were more fundamental. Like, can you give an account for some of the the issues that led up to that? 
Yeah, I think it's it's it runs deeper than the fact that Australia had a better coaching system, and and also, I mean, its coaches were more um, more outward looking and willing to learn from other sports. I mean, most famously, obviously, uh, Jack Gibson and Terry Fernley went to the states in the late nineteen sixties and learned from American football, which is something that British coaches weren't really interested in. But I think there's a there's a whole series of issues that allowed Australia to rise but also meant that Britain fell back. Um, some, of the, some of them are obvious, like the fact that Sydney Rugby League became fantastically wealthy in the standards of Rugby League in the 1960s after poker machines were um, legalised in the late 1950s in New South Wales. And that meant that clubs were much... Um, yeah, Rugby League clubs in Sydney were much richer. The game um, consolidated and centralised around the New South Wales Rugby League. And so the standard of play necessarily became higher because um, it attracted the best players, um, you know, particularly obviously from country New South Wales, but also uh, from Great Britain. By the time you get to um, the 1975 World Cup, you effectively have a Great Britain probably the best Great Britain 13, is playing in Sydney, but because of the international laws that pertained at the time, they weren't allowed to play for Great Britain. Uh, they weren't allowed to play international football. So um, uh, so that the, the last, well, the, uh, one of the last great tr- uh, generations of British players, the Mal Reillys, the Roger Millwoods, the Brian Lockwoods, the Phil Lowe's, uh, spent the best years of their careers, um, to a large extent, in in Australia, uh, and Britain in the nineteen seventies had to function with what was at best a, uh, maybe a one and a half string second string team. So there was that that was an issue. I think the um, British uh, rugby league obviously suffered economically in the nineteen sixties. In contrast to Sydney, crowds declined very rapidly um, uh, in by the ni- by the early nineteen seventies. Crowds had uh, were basically a, a, an aggregate season. Crowds were one million, which, when you consider that thirty years before that they'd been around three and a half, four million, is a massive loss, mm. both in terms of revenue, but also in terms of the numbers of players that were coming through as well. And it's clear that the game constricted uh, in Britain quite rapidly, and that there was a lot of disquiet amongst amateur rugby league clubs about the way the game was atrophying and dying in, in areas and that led in 1973 to the formation of the British Amateur Rugby League Association, a breakaway from the Rugby Football League that looked after the amateur game. And I think the other factor that um, is often overlooked is the fact that football changed fundamentally, Rugby League changed fundamentally uh, in the 1970s um, because of the introduction of limited tackle football. Um uh, limited tackle football was introduced in 1966 as four tackles, then 71, it became six tackles. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the last time that Great Britain run the Ashes was in uh, in 1970. Uh, the last uh, and only test series that was played, uh, Ashes test series that was played under four tackles. Um, and the generation that played in that match had been brought up and like their football under unlimited, unlimited tackle rules. I th- um, but the generate and but I think limited tackle football suited Australia much more than Britain, because obviously to play limited tackle football you had to be much fitter. And you talk to any English player who went to play in Australia in the 1970s, and they were astounded by the basic levels of fitness of even the um, yeah 
even journeyman players. And in fact, there's a great story when Malcolm really um, tend to put uh, Manley um, for his first training session in 1971. Um, he was shocked to find that the, the players went on a um, yeah, ten mile run or something like that, just as a, as, as a loosener up. And he was shocked not only to find that he came last, but he came behind Ken Arthurson, the the mm. secretary of the club then, who was even fitter than Malcolm was. So, you know, so, I mean, there's obviously, obviously reasons. The Australian climate is much more, um, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's better for uh, for all-round fitness and, you know, different lifestyles, different cultures mean that. But I do think in general that the the move to limited tackle football meant that there was a premium placed on fitness, and the traditional British forward skills of passing out on a tackle, building up pressure and the ball playing forwards, releasing the backs. You could no longer do that because you only had um, you only had effectively five tackles to build any pressure before you had to lose the ball. And so I think that the change in the nature of the game also weakened British rugby league, which it never really and it never really managed to overcome the gap. Uh, that that had led to, uh, that was manifested, by, obviously by the 1982 Kangaroos, and all the way through the 1980s. And was do you think the domestic game was a reflection of what happened in 1982? Was like the were the clubs really struggling and the league kind of struggling to to keep up as well? Well, that's the interesting question because um, the 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 absolute nadir, the lowest point in the history of British rugby league, was probably around about 1970 1971. When um, the club was the the clubs are all, pretty much all of them are insolvent, technically insolvent, and most famously Ron Chester, who was a Hull Kingston Rovers um, representative on the Rugby League Council, uh, said um, in an interview, "Rugby League is not dying; it's dead." Um, and so he was in a pretty bad state in the early 1970s. And as I mentioned before, Barla broke away to run the amateur game separately because of its. Uh, frustration at the inability of the RFL to do anything. But things did start to change in the 1970s. And in particular, you have the the growth of uh, the rise to prominence of the two Hull clubs, Hull FC and Hull KR, which, um, yeah, there was the famous All-Hull Wembley final in 1980, one of a number of All-Hull finals in the Premiership and other competitions that took place from the late 70s to the mid-1980s. And so actually, the... By the time the Kangaroos arrived in 1982, the British game had actually got back on its feet. It was attracting sponsorship income. Crowds were going up. Uh, There was a feeling of optimism in the game that it had recovered from where it had been 10 years ago and was now in quite a strong position. So when the Kangaroos first came over and first arrived in September 1982, there was quite an optimistic sense about how well Great Britain would do against them. And obviously, that's not how things worked out. But even in the aftermath of that tour, you know, you started seeing these changes being brought in and, again, a kind of level of optimism about, you know, coaching standards improving and the rest of it. But to me, the the improvements in the, the great British team over the course of the 80s have more to do with the fact that you had, like, Ellery Hanley, Gary Schofield in particular, you know, Sean Edwards, all these players coming through at the same time that... Like by that time, they they were already through. They'd already been developed. So, were there any substantive changes, or was it just lucky with a, a once in a generation group of talent emerging? Um, I, I think 
yeah, you're right about there was there was a golden generation. Obviously, Ellery Hanley, one of the ultimate greatest players ever to play the game. Gary Schofield, again, incredibly talented in in the rugby league, British Rugby League Hall of Fame, uh, yeah, and really deservedly so. Andy Gregory, uh, yeah, classic British scrum half. Um, Joe Lydon, great three quarter. So there, so there was a lot of talent that came through. But as you say, these were people who'd been born in the in the 1960s and came through. Just in fact, with the exception of well, maybe even Lydon, they all made their debuts just before the Kangaroos. Um, uh, with Schofield, because Schofield was, was younger, uh, but they made their debuts pretty much when the Kangaroos um, just before the Kangaroos arrived, and certainly in, in that early nineteen eighties period. Um, but on the other hand, I do I do think that some of the changes that were brought in with the national coaching um, uh, scheme that was introduced. And the way that coaches themselves improved, I mean, obviously Malcolm really was a good example of that, meant that by the time we get to the 1990s and um, the um, the Ashes series between Great Britain, 1990, 92, 94, when they all really went down to the wire, you not only had your handlers and your Schofields, all-time great players who would have played in any team, but you also had a bunch of players who you know could pretty much hold their own at some level. Uh, with the Australians, who who weren't the most, you know, weren't the greatest players of all time, but they could do the basic things well. Um, so it did have some, it did have some impact. But one of the problems with with British rugby league is its ability to to sustain effort over a long period. Um, you know, if you look at the way the game has chopped and changed, its competitions, promotion, relegation, rule adaptations, um, it's. Uh, it's it lacks stability, and I think stability, as any sports and you know sports team analyst will tell you, stability is one of the key things that leads to successful teams. And I think that's one that was one of the issues. But also, yeah, um, I think another fundamental structural issue that led to that imbalance in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties was simply the fact that you know, rugby league is the dominant sport in New South Wales and Queensland. And that, by and large, the best athletes play rugby league. Um, and in Britain, that's not the case. It's um, the great example of this is Ryan Giggs, uh, all-time great Manchester United soccer player, one of the great soccer players you've ever seen. Um, he comes from a rugby league background. Uh, his father, Danny Wilson, played for Swinton. Uh, great trivia question: When did Ryan Giggs make his first appearance at Old Trafford? The 1986 Great Britain versus Australia. Test match at Old Trafford. He was a ball boy because the ball boys yeah. were selected from uh, Manchester Rugby League playing schoolboys, and Ryan Giggs was one of them. Uh, and he played he played schoolboy rep rugby until he was thirteen. Then he had to stop because of his football contracts. Now, if that had been in Australia, Ryan Giggs would have you know Ryan Giggs would have been talking about Ryan Giggs as a really talented soccer player who became one of rugby league's great all time wingers. Um, and that was something of a change as well. The fact that. Soccer almost in the north of England almost always won out over rugby league uh, when you have you know kids who are talented at both games in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. Before that, before certainly up until the nineteen fifties, there were advantages to um, choosing rugby league over soccer if you were good at both games. So, for example, um, in rugby league, you could get. Uh, 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 signing bonuses. So when you sign for a club, you're, they could pay you a significant bonus uh, for signing with them, which wasn't allowed in soccer. 
But in 1963, soccer abolished its maximum wage, uh, which at that point had been 25, I think 25 pounds a week, something like that, which is pretty much what you'd get as a top level rugby league player. After that, you know, soccer wages soared. I mean, they're nothing like they are today, but certainly you could earn, you know, two, two, three, four hundred pounds a week when in rugby league, you know, if you could, even in the 1970s, if you got a hundred pounds a match, you were doing very, very well. So, Rugby league also suffered from the way that soccer grew much, much richer than any other sport in Britain from the 1960s onwards. And it meant that, you know, not always, but more times than not, the best athlete, when athletes like Giggs, who were talented at both games, had to choose, they chose soccer. So we lost a lot of players that probably would have played rugby league in the 40s and 50s. And, yeah, obviously, if they were in Australia, they would have chosen rugby league. That probably speaks of some of the efforts in the early 80s to expand the game and move into places, you know, like Carlisle, uh, Kent, you know, London through Fulham. Um, Can you speak a bit about those efforts at expansion, why they failed and, you know, what maybe a different path could have been? Yeah, I mean, there were. this is one of the indications of the fact that the British game was actually on the rise and was... uh, was, uh, was gaining support and had a lot of self confidence in the early nineteen eighties, because you have a series of expansion teams that are that are opened, um, as you say, Carlisle, um, just north of the traditional rugby league uh, area of Cumbria, um, Cardiff in South Wales, um, an area that you know the game has always drawn a lot of players from, and you know should have had a club there for for uh, for decades, uh, and then slightly stranger ones like as you say. Uh, Kent and Victor, which were based in Maidstone in Kent, uh, which is uh, well uh, hundreds of miles from any well until London, uh, until Fulham, the London club was founded in 1981. Were hundreds of miles. Kent were hundreds of miles from any other rugby league club, and uh, yeah, no tradition. It's a soccer area, no tradition. Um, Fulham themselves, who are now the London Broncos after several changes of name and um, location, were founded in in 1980. Um, so uh, so there was a lot of lot of movement and a lot of optimism about expansion. The problem with almost all of those expansion clubs, the exception being Sheffield Eagles, um, which were founded um, in 1984 by Gary Hetherington and his wife Kath Hetherington, um, pretty much not too far from the traditional rugby league area, just really just above the the board, just below the border between rugby league and, and soccer in South Yorkshire. Um, and they had a lot of experience and could draw on a lot of you know, rugby league uh, people from uh, just north of the city. All of the other ones were essentially speculative ventures. They were set up usually by soccer clubs. Soccer at this period was going through a very dark period. It was you know, rife with fascist hooliganism. Um, crowds were declining very rapidly. It had a very bad reputation. And so soccer clubs were looking to diversify and... Um, um, Raise, generate more income and rugby league is one of the ways they th- felt they could do that so all pretty much all of the other clubs were founded either with soccer clubs or played at soccer grounds um so that was a problem in to begin with because it meant that once the soccer clubs started to recover um their um their popularity the game began to rise they they lost interest in rugby league rugby league was a sideline at best the other problem from the perspective of the game is that there was no plan involved Basically, if you had the money and you could persuade the Rugby Football League that you could run a club, then you could start a professional rugby league team. 
there was simply no long-term strategic plan involved in figuring out where the game should have clubs or even if the game should have clubs in these different areas. And you can you know, just look at a map of where all these clubs were. It made no sense. There was no logic, no business case, no long-term strategic vision behind that. And so clearly, you know, pretty much all of them failed. Uh, not surprisingly, after uh, mainly after one or two seasons. Um, and, and I think that, in a sense, goes back to the point that I was making about the the game on the field, the lack of stability. There's, in the modern period, since the 1970s, since the late 1970s, there's really been no stability within the game in terms of um, the structure of its competitions or its long-term strategic plan of where it's going. And so that means that, you know, there's a new initiative every couple of years, Everybody gets really enthusiastic about it and then it doesn't quite work out as people imagined and then they uh, eventually abandon it, go back to the status quo and then something else comes up. And this has been the history of the game for for the past 40 years, unfortunately. I mean, I I can speak for hours on the the lack of strategic planning or vision from the Australian Rugby League, but it, it does seem really particular to the RFL, this going in one direction and then after a few seasons just completely reverting to the other way and being stuck in these endless cycles of, oh, we're doing promotion, now we're doing licensing and, you know, it it goes on and on and it just seems nothing's improved, as you said, for 40 or 50 years. Yeah, I think that's true and I think it's true for a couple of reasons. One, um, there... It's the game has struggled to find, and I think it's probably true in Australia as well. The game has struggled to find top class administrators who have significant experience outside of the world of rugby league. And in you know, yeah, God knows it's changing rapidly enough now. But certainly, even in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, the sports world was changing very rapidly. And so you need that. You need people with that broader perspective about how things have worked out in other sports or in other businesses, other you know, other other, other parts of the world. Um, so, so there's an issue with the the type of administration that that the league has. The other issue, which again is similar to Sydney in some ways, but even more pronounced, is that. The fact that essentially rugby league is a cartel made up of the the the, cl- the clubs, and that the clubs essentially make the most important decisions. Um, yeah, and we see you can see that most clearly with Super League over the last the last year and the uh, the Toronto Wolfpack saga, where the decision about whether the Wolfpack should continue, leaving aside anything about the way the Wolfpack was run. Uh, but the decision whether the Wolfpack should continue within Super League was voted on by each member club of Super League. And that meant that there was a huge conflict of interest because essentially the clubs were voting on whether they should get more money from the central funding that Super League has access to because Toronto Wolfpack wanted their share of the Super League money, uh, which would mean that other clubs got less. And therefore, of course, the decision was inevitable that the clubs would vote to give themselves more money and abandon uh, uh, abandon the Wolfpack because it would, they, in their terms, it was seen as taking money out of their mouths. And this has been a perennial problem uh, throughout the history of the game, but it, it's become more pronounced over the last 30 to 40 years when 
you know, the sports world and society is changing very rapidly and therefore rugby league can no longer rely on its traditional sources of income. You know, crowds that, you know, lived and worked within a stone's throw of the stadiums, um, players who uh, also had full-time jobs outside of the game, so they didn't demand high wages, and also amateur rugby union whereby, you know, rugby league by and large could could pick the best players that were suited to play rugby league who were in rugby union uh, and buy them up, and uh, none of these things exist today, and the game really hasn't taken any... Um, any cognizance of that fact hasn't changed its view of the world and its strategic perspectives based on the fact that its traditional, you know, its traditional foundations have changed uh, very dramatically over the past period. Can you, going back to the, to the early eighties and, and into the mid eighties, can you explain the rise of Wigan in terms of all of this? Like, what led to them becoming such a, a great team? Well, the short answer is the fact they went professional, uh, full-time professional in, I think, 1985, 1986. Um, all the other teams were semi-professional. All, you know, pretty much every player had a job outside of the game. I mean, there might have been one or two star figures, um, your handlers and your Schofields who didn't work or, uh, outside, but pretty much everybody worked outside. Um, in... Um, in the early 1980s, Wigan were relegated from the first division to the second division, the first time they'd ever been in the lower divisions of rugby league. And that had a, a seismic shock on the club and the town. Um, one of the interesting... Th- Wigan's a very interesting sociological example of rugby league because although they've got a soccer, professional soccer team, Wigan Athletic, it's very much um, this, yeah, uh, this, the second-choice sports team in Wigan. Rugby league dominates Wigan... Um, right across Wigan society in a way that it doesn't in any other town of that size. Um, Not even Hull, um, although Hull's not too dissimilar. But I don't think there's any town in the north of England where rugby league dominates and is so much a part of the identity of a town as it is in Wigan. Uh, You know, you talk to anybody in Britain, uh, say the name Wigan in Britain, and they will say rugby league. And so to be relegated into the second division was a tremendous blow to you know, civic pride and the pride of the club. The club was taken over by a consortium led by Maurice Lindsay, who um, is a, um, a kind of a, yeah, a very model of a thrusting northern businessman. Um, very innovative, very energetic, very persuasive. Um, and always had some vision, some greater vision for Wigan as a club and for the game as a whole than most people in the game did. So, um, so it was Lindsay took the, took the team uh, into full time professionalism, attracted the best coaches, Graham Lowe, then John Money, uh, attracted the best players both in Britain and Australia. You know, we uh, they had Brett Kenny, John Ferguson, uh, Ian Roberts, uh, Steve Ellett, loads of great players playing for Wigan, as well as the very best. He bought up the very best talent in Britain. Uh, Ellery Hanley, Andy Gregory, Joe Lydon, uh, pretty much anybody who was available, Maurice Lindsay um, picked up. So they became, uh, in a sense, um, if the the success story of the late 70s, early 80s were the two Hull clubs, from the mid 1980s, it was Wigan that carried the mantle of rugby league and the, you know, flew the flag for rugby league um, in a way that no other club had done. Well, quite possibly 
going back to before the first war, the great Huddersfield team of Harold Wagstaff and you know, Albert Rosenfeld scoring 80 tries a season and things like that. And, you know, that's the probably one of the few comparators of that Wigan team of the 1980s and early 1990s. And where was the, the money coming from? That, that's what I struggle to understand, why they were able to do so much more than any other team and, and get like every good player to come and play for them. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, there were, I, mean, I, I know for a fact that Hull Kingston Rovers discussed going full-time professional in 1985 when Wigan did it. Uh, but the board drew back, the board of directors drew back from it because they thought it would be too costly. Um, Wigan's money came from, the, well, primarily from the, the board of directors. They had a, a four-person board of directors with Morris Lindsay and three other um, quite well-heeled um, Wigan businessmen on board. So that they had access to a considerable amount of money. Um, the status of the club within the town meant that other people um uh, other businessmen would also um you know put their put their hands in the pockets as a local phrase uh, has it um to to help the club out to pay the wages of players uh, to to give jobs to wives of players to supply players with houses at cheap rent cars and all the rest of it so there was a pool of um uh, uh, there was a pool of monetary and other remuneration that was available to Wigan that wasn't necessarily available to other clubs certainly clubs in smaller towns um uh, but also i think the other thing is that in terms of today's finances it didn't really um it, it didn't really cost a huge amount um so for example um i think when ellery handley went to wigan in 1985 the 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 transfer fee was 150000 pounds um, which yeah, it, it's just absolutely nothing today. But um, and for the time compared, I mean, at that point in soccer transfer fees had already gone through a million pound mark. Um, so it wasn't a massive amount of money, and providing it was controlled, it was probably perfectly manageable. But by the time they got to the late eight, late nineteen eighties, and early nineteen nineties, it was getting out of control, and it was particularly uh, becoming difficult because of the uh, ground disasters that had happened in soccer in the mid-1980s. The the Bradford City fire in 1985, which, to be perfectly frank, could have just as easily happened at a rugby league ground. For listeners who don't know, a a stand at Bradford City um, burnt down in the middle of a match um, and killed over over 50 people. Um, uh, and in fact, Valley Parade, Bradford City's ground, was until 1903, uh, and Bradford City were a rugby league club, and it was a rugby league ground. Uh, then it switched to soccer. So, uh, so the Bradford City tragedy had a profound effect on rugby league, both because of the fear that it could have easily happened at a rugby league ground, but also because it meant the government brought in legislation uh, pertaining to the safety of football grounds, which, and football on this occasion, did include rugby league football, that meant that... Um, State, most rugby league stadia um, um, were in need of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds of renovation. That was followed in 1989 by the Hillsborough um, Stadium disaster in the FA Cup semi-final when 93 Liverpool fans were crushed to death. That had, again, a, a huge impact on the financing of... Uh, on, on the uh, the need to uh, make um, all types of football grounds safer rugby league also suffered because of that and uh and so 
the amounts of money that were now required by the early 1990s to to run a rugby league club did not just consist of player payments and transfer fees. It all cons- it also consisted of massive capital injections into grounds to either bring them up to the new safety standards or to basically abandon them and build new grounds. So rugby league was hit by a kind of perfect storm. The other thing that happened, obviously, transfer fees, as is always the case in the transfer market, um, transfer fees just spiralled upwards and upwards. So by, I think, 92, was it? Martin Afaya went from uh, Widnes to Wigan for almost half a million pounds, which was... Uh, that really was a, a huge sum, given the fact that uh, Wigan also were in the hole for millions of pounds to redevelop their central park ground, which they eventually abandoned. Put Wigan in particular in very difficult financial circumstances, and they were just the kind of most extreme example of something that was affecting pretty much every club in the game by the uh, by the early nineteen nineties. Uh, we're jumping ahead of it, but you've led me to something that I, I really wanted to talk about, which was. I read the the Framing the Future guidelines, uh, which I and this was the 1996 revision after the Murdoch money had come in, and it was a very different document to what I was expecting, because it seemed like 90% of it was directly as a result of the the stadium policy, as you've discussed. It didn't didn't seem it was really a far-reaching guide to fixing rugby league. It, it seemed like basically a requirement of of how the sport could continue. Yeah, it's an interesting document and it kind of still echoes today because um, if you go to some Super League grounds, you'll find that many of its recommendations are still waiting to be implemented uh, 25 years after it came out. Um, Yeah, uh, Framing the Future has has a long backstory, um, partly related to the... Uh, the way in which um, stadiums had to be improved after the Bradford City and the Hillsborough disasters. But also it relates back to the way in which uh, the top clubs in the 1980s, Wigan in particular, but also the other leading clubs, Leeds, the two whole clubs, um, were were looking at the future of the game in that... Um, there was, I think, the earliest mention of somewhat an official saying there needs to be a Super League of the top clubs it comes around about 1985, 1986. And the top clubs become frustrated at the fact that they are not getting the slice of TV money that they think they deserve. And they try and um, reduce the handouts that the clubs lower down in the second division, lower down the league, uh, are getting. Again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about the, the, the rugby league in Britain being a cartel where clubs essentially view this, the, the future of the game through the, the lens of their own bank accounts. Um, and so uh, one of the ways in which the leading clubs thought they could um, increase the differentiation between them and the lower clubs lower down the leagues was by insisting on minimal minimal minimum standards for clubs that came into the first division, as the top division was then known. And so there'd been a lot of talk about minimum standards, oh, from certainly the mid-1980s. And so Framing the Future has a long story uh, behind it, and that it's both a, an attempt to, you know, quite rightly improve the spectator experience at grounds, but also as a way of sealing off the top clubs 
from having to either share share income with the low clubs, but also trying to make it harder for the low clubs to get into the top division and you know take take their share of the top division money, which again is pretty much what was going on with uh, the Wolfpack fiasco last last year. So, so framing the future is you know there's a lot of you know a lot of things that are highly supportable and certainly in the in the, um, uh, in the early 1990s um, I was active in the Rugby League Supporters Association, and it's one of the things we campaigned for because particularly in uh, when rugby league in Britain was playing in the winter, um, going to many grounds was not an experience that you could easily recommend to the uh, to new, to a potential new rugby league supporter. So, um, so, so, so Frame of the Future both had a, a good purpose, trying to bring stadiums into the 20th century, let alone the 21st century, but also it played a political role in the way that the top clubs were trying to manoeuvre for a greater slice of the pie and exclude clubs low down the, low down the league. And so uh, along those lines, a phrase you still hear to this day in terms of English Rugby League is a closed shop. And we don't really have an equivalent in Australia because the idea that, I don't know, Wentworthville could one day be playing in the, the NRL is laughable. But it seem, is it a cultural thing about English sport or English Rugby League fans? Like, Can, can you um, talk on that? Yeah, I, you're right. It's a cultural thing. Um, it's it's one of the um, it's one of the examples uh, which you can see demonstrate that sport is not just a business that it doesn't follow traditional business lines because clearly um, you know you look at um, you look at the NFL in states or you know Major League Baseball most commercially most successful. Uh, sports leagues, um, you know, over the past fifty years, uh, and they operate that um, you know closed league system where there's no promotion and relegation. There ne- never has been, and there never will be. And uh, you know, American sports supports find it very difficult to comprehend. Now, obviously, in in Australia, there's a sim- there's a, a, not quite the same, but a similar model because there's no promotion and relegation, the RRL uh, or the AFL. Um, in Britain, it's different. Because there's an expectation that in a league system, everybody has the equal opportunity, regardless of where they start off, that they will play in the top division. Um, so, yeah, so in an Australian context, sure, why can't Wentworthville or any other any other team in, in Sydney or Brisbane or in the country, um, why can't they get to the top of the NRL and play in a grand final? Surely that's everybody's dream. Um now in Britain that's partly a myth because it comes from soccer and soccer started the first league the football league in uh, 1888 and in, initially that was a closed league too and it only they only introduced promotion and relegation because they did a deal with a rival league the football alliance um and the football alliance became the second division of the football league it, so they the football league basically incorporated a uh, a challenger league, a, co- a, a a competitor, and the the compromise in that deal was that there would be promotion and relegation between the first uh, what was you know what was essentially the football league and the football alliance, but then they were just simply renamed Division One and Division Two. But because that was that took place very early on in the history of soccer, that appeared to be a yeah you know, a kind of a model of equality and democracy that everybody has a chance rather than actually being a business deal. Um and that became the model for soccer. So then you had you know, after World War One you got 
um, Division 3, then you got Division 4, then eventually in the 1980s they opened up promotion and relegation between Division 4 and the, the leagues below that. And so there's an, there's an entire pyramid. And that that is very much part of British sporting culture because it's seen as part of the, if you like, the fairness, of the intrinsic fairness of sport. It's a level playing field and everybody has a chance to play in the final and become the champions. So that's never going to leave British sport. It's so deeply ingrained. And trying to stop that um, will only result in heartache, pain, protests, and eventually you will reverse that decision and allow some form of promotion and relegation, which is what's happening in rugby league. Licensing came in, um, there was no promotion and relegation, then that didn't work. Um, promotion and relegation was brought in, and this has happened over the last over the last ten years. So you've got this crazy system where you know there's about four systems, three systems: licensing, the um, cannibalistic. Um, um, I can't remember what they call. I've tried to wipe wipe it from mind. Bottom bottom four Super League clubs play top four Championship clubs. Um, <laughs> the loser of the playoff final is essentially made unemployed, and all the rest of it. And now we've got what appears to be straightforward promotion and relegation, although that's not how it worked out. So, yeah, so that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, there's a strong business case to have a closed Super League. But the reality is, culturally, that won't work. And it particularly won't happen in, in, won't work in British Rugby League because the game was founded on a principle of equal opportunity for all. That's why we broke away from Rugby Union, to allow everybody to have the chance to play at the best... The, the highest level their talents would take them. So to then remove that from clubs doesn't sit well at all with uh, with any rugby league supporter. So it's it's a tough problem to deal with, but it's a problem that has to be dealt with. How do you make Super League as commercially robust as possible, yet still allow a gateway for clubs to advance? And we haven't got the answer. Uh, to that, well, the RFL hasn't got the answer to that yet. I mean, I think there are some ways, uh, but it's one of the fundamental issues that has to be dealt with. Uh, yeah, I mean, you had that situation a few years ago where you had Toulouse and Toronto both playing in the second division, and it, it just—it feels like there's, there's all these complaints about not being able to escape the M62 corridor, and it just feels like, well, this is a big part of the reason. You know, it seemed from, from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, personally, I think there's a um, um, there's a way of doing promotion and relegation simply in terms of going back to a system that rugby league had in the early 1900s. Just have a playoff game between the bottom team and the top t- uh, bottom team of Super League and the top team of um, um, of the Championship, and you know that solves the problem because then the bottom team will will be replaced on merit because the top team in the Championship is the better of the two sides. Um, that's difficult for clubs to accept because it puts it's because it's difficult for the championship team. So it's not, the, you know, they'd, and I've had this argument with people, they don't see it as being in their interest. And it's also difficult for the Super League team to accept because it essentially puts their future, their future hangs on one game. Although that's happened, you know, that's essentially what's happened in the past, but uh, it, it, with the million pound game, with the, and... the idiotic million pound game. Um, but you know, nevertheless, it's um, it's it's a fairer and less um, 
devastating way of doing it than the million pound game because you put in you know you put it you put into place safeguards in terms of funding and all that i mean and that works that works in soccer it's a slightly different system but in english soccer there's there's a playoff for the last um uh, promotion place which is slightly different but nevertheless it seems to uh, it seems to work okay and i think that's what we should be moving to uh, but you know clearly because all decisions have to be made essentially by the clubs that's very difficult to implement because there's no one with the um the authority to say authority to, sorry the authority to say no this is what we decided at a strategic level and this is how it's going to be if you don't like it fine but that's how it's going to be and that's um, that's not something that happens regularly in british rugby league mm. uh just to veer wildly off course we are we are rapidly approaching super league but i'm not quite ready to get there yet I want to um, just touch back on the international game and the the advances made throughout, you know, the late 80s into the 90s with, you know, some, some great series and, you know, going toe-to-toe with the Australians, um, 1990 in particular. Um, when I think about what was happening with the international game, it also coincided with the birth of State of Origin and that, becoming such a dominant part of Australian rugby league and completely wiping out the international game in many Australians' eyes because if you wanted really intense, high-quality representative football, that's where you went. Um, Do you think a stronger Great British team could have maybe stopped that or curtailed it a little bit? Um. Definitely curtailed it a little bit because I think you know you look at it historically. Then State of Origin has replaced the Ashes as the 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 pinnacle of the Australian game, um, and it's not an accident that State of Origin started at precisely the time that the British team uh, was at its weakest and its most uncompetitive that it had ever been. Uh, yeah, as I said, nineteen seventy nine, the, the the British tour team were embarrassingly whitewashed. Next season, State of Origin starts uh, and it takes off. And as you say, apart from the great series of the early 1990s, um, it's never been able to co- to compete. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think the, the, the intensity of State of Origin is basically the modern equivalent of the intensity of Ashes matches, um, the way in which it's a uh, just a central part of Australian rugby league culture is the same as um, the Ashes series you used to occupy. I mean, you go back and read, look at the Sydney Press or look at Rugby League News in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, then, you know, if, if, you, if you swapped Ashes series for State of Origin, you'd be pretty much uh, reading the same type of articles uh, with the same type of themes. So, so yeah, um, a lot of the... Um, perhaps you could say a lot of the credit for the success of State of Origin... Is down to the um, the poor form of Great Britain in the nineteen eighties. If you know, if the if the Ashes series had have been going to you know, if Great Britain and Australia had been going toe to toe in the Ashes series in eighty two, eighty four, eighty six, eighty eight, and Britain had won, uh, and it had seesawed in the same way that it did, so seesawed in the same way they did in the forties and fifties, then I think State of Origin would still be massive. But there'd have been two, if you like, two. Um, uh, two showpiece series uh, within the game, one of which would be the Ashes, the other the other of which would have been State of Origin. 
Great Britain had won that 1990 series, do you think that would have had a, a lasting impact on, you know, maybe kind of turning it around? Or do you think that still would have not been enough to address the bigger issues? Um, well, I've got to... Probably not, because there's deep structural issues. I would say that, uh, this, in a sense, is completely off topic. The The second match of that 1990 series at Old Trafford um, was the most um, thrilling sporting experience that I've ever had. Um, I don't... I, I don't know how many listeners actually because I, I went I went there um, and because Britain had won the first test at Wembley with a really good team uh, Schofield Hanley Gregory and against a really good Australian team and so there was a real optimism in uh, in England that this was it we could really do it um, team has virtually changed uh, we knew we had the beating of the Aussies and there's a moment in that second test when Australia are attacking and I think Cliffy Lyons throws out a pass. Paul Lockley intercepts it. Um, the the atmosphere on the ground when that happened, uh, you know, 50,000, a lot of lot, lot of Aussie tourists, but you know, pretty much 50,000 uh, British rugby league fans who knew we hadn't won the Ashes since 1970, um, knew how much the Ashes meant to the game, um, Lockley intercepts the pass, goes in and scores. Um, it was—I've never heard fifty thousand people take a collective um, breath of excitement at the same time. Um, literally, I can feel my chest constricting. I'm sure tens of thousands of other people did. Uh, and I think that, in a sense, you know, I—I I grew up in a rugby league household where the, you know the Ashes were the pinnacle of of our game, and so um, I suspect that you know, again, there's another forty-nine. 1,999 people who felt exactly the same. This was not just uh, any old rugby league match with a great piece of uh, uh, great piece of skill by Paul Opling to intercept. This was the the past, present, and future of British rugby league in a moment. And then, of course, you know the um, uh, Gary Schofield kicks to the corner. There's about 90 seconds left. Schofield does exactly the right thing as he always did. Kicks to the corner. It's deep in the Australian territory. We've got a draw. We can't lose this series. And then, of course, two tackles later, Ricky Stewart starts to go up the field, up the field, up the field, up the field. Don't get tackled, and yeah, we lose. So, so sorry, I digress. But I no, that that was amazing. That was, yeah, well, that's and, and also, that. I remember the first time we ever visited Sydney in around about 2000. I get in a taxi like the second uh, t- time I'm there, and the guy says, "Oh, you're a pommy. So do you follow football?" I said, "Yeah, proper football, rugby league." He said, "Oh, yeah, mate. I remember that second test at Old Trafford. I just couldn't believe what a great game." I said, "You're telling me." <laughs> so yes, it's, it's, sorry, that's a personal memory, but I think it, yeah, it's kind of um, it shows what was hanging on that match and that series. If we'd have won, um, I think it would have given the game a, a, an added level of self confidence that it uh, that it didn't have. The structural problems would still be there. Lack of strategic vision for where the game was going. Um, the problems dealing with um, uh, with the threat of fo- threat from football, and then obviously you know, financial problems off the field, and the what would happen uh, five years later with Super League. Um, but I think what it would have done, it would have given Great Britain uh, and the British game uh, a new level of self confidence, because I think this is the other thing that has affected the British game since the nineteen eighties. And uh, and that is, there's a psychological issue. 
when Great Britain play Australia, there is an expectation that the Australians will win because the Aussies are so much better than we are. And, you know, we watch them every week in the NRL or before that um, in uh, New South Wales Rugby League. Um, you know, for every great player we have, there are 10 Aussies. And that has uh, an effect on what happens when British players play against the Australians. Um, and that's not to say they're not psychologically equipped for it or they're not great players or they're not tough or anything like that. It's just simply the way it is. And I think the classic example of that, of that was the 2003, 2003 series, yeah. When in each of the series in, uh, in England, in each of those test matches, Great Britain was winning as the last 10 minutes of the match appeared. And I can tell you from the view of, of, of spectators, but I suspect it's also true of the players, is that the British attitude was, can we hang on? Can we hang on? We've only got 10 minutes to go, which immediately puts you on the back foot. The Australians are thinking, how are we going to win this? What are we going to do to win it? So you're automatically in a different different mindset. Um, and what happened? We lost all three of those test matches, which could have easily been won with a, uh, you know, more self-confidence, better uh, end of game plan. Uh, you know, we could have won the Ashes 3-0, which would have been fantastic. Um one of the interesting things about this uh, this question of confidence is that um, um, this is also or was traditionally true of the English soccer team as well. Um, I spoke to someone who'd worked closely with um, uh, Frank Lampard, the great English soccer player of the you know, last 20 years. Um, and he, Frank Lampard, um, told the writer that one of the problems the England soccer team had in the 2006 particularly in 2006 World Cup, is that they went on the field and they felt they were weighed down by the weight of expectation and the past. And everybody was always saying, is it going to be our World Cup year? And remember 1966 and all this type of stuff. And he said that, you know, we had to carry that around with us. And there was a, you know, so the baggage of history uh, was weighing us down. And that, in a slightly different way, was all, I think is still true today um, with the Great Britain team. There's a, you know, it's the, uh, and I hate this phrase, but, you know, the, the um, um, what is it? You know, it, when we lose, it's, but lose well, it's a moral victory. But there is no losing well. There is no moral victory. You lost the game. And that's a difficult thing um, to overcome. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I think it would have made, if we won in um, 1990 or potentially 1994. And remember in 1992 in Australia, the British team actually outscored the Australians over over the three uh, the three Test matches. So, you know, in a slightly you know in sliding doors world, it's not inconceivable that we could have won the nineteen ninety ninety two ninety four series, which would have given the game a tremendous boost of self confidence, and I think also what it would have done in terms of um, the British the British game in Britain, it would have given it a much higher profile nationally. Because one of the things the game has always suffered from is um, lack of respect from the national media. But anybody who beats Australia is automatically newsworthy. And certainly to have done it in the 1990s well, it would have had a big impact on the way that rugby league was covered in the media and the the attention that it would have got, which would have had a knock-on effect in terms of you know public interest, crowds, 
uh, and things like that. So, so yeah, it wouldn't have solved a lot of the problems that the game had, but it would have uh, it would have put it on a much higher platform to be able to think about how those problems could be solved. But you did mention the structural issues. So, as we get to Super League, can you just give your rundown on where Rugby League was at when Murdoch came knocking on the door? Um, yeah, there's a. There's a kind of belief that rugby league was was dying when Murdoch came um, uh, came in 1995. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, the game was in yeah, reasonably good health. It, it had a bunch of long term problems. One, um, mo- many of which it couldn't do much about. So, as I said, I mean, soccer was outstripping every other sport in Britain by this time, even before the Premier League was introduced. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the game couldn't compete for the best athletes who played both games. So that was an issue. Um, fundamentally, there was a um, the problem of um, stadiums. The, the financial uh, hit that the game had to take in order to basically make its stadiums safe to play in and to watch the game in was almost beyond its means it struggled to do that and as I say you can go to some grounds today and I'm not going to mention them because people will know which ones and nothing is re- nothing has changed since I since my dad first took me to watch the game at those grounds in the late 1960s early 1970s I mean literally in fact they've got worse um, so that that was a big issue the other issue was that um, the the game was gripped by transfer fever. Transfer fees went higher and higher and higher. Um, and clubs could not afford ground improvements, high transfer fees. And obviously when you get a high turnover of players, it's a player's market. So the players um, um, expect high wages. So the game had uh, a number of difficult financial problems to deal with. Um, on the other hand, there were some bright spots. Uh, it was getting increased TV coverage. It had um, recruited pretty much the best uh, rugby union players in Wales to come and play. I mean, you know, all-time greats like Jonathan Davis, uh, you know, and you know, great players in their own rights like John Devereux, David Bishop, um, Scott Gibbs, who never really had enough time in rugby, but was a fantastic rugby league player. Um, and so there were a lot of positive things. So the idea, which I think is, is was peddled by people who supported Super League that the you know the game was dying and uh, it was on its uppers and it need it couldn't have done anything different. It wasn't entirely true, but it um, uh, it had dire financial problems, and also there was a an understanding that something had to change structurally. And one of the things that came up as a way of helping that and a way of coping with the threat from soccer was uh, the suggestion that the game should switch its season from winter to summer. And this had, been, you know, this had been an idea that went back to the 1930s. Lance Todd, when he was the manager, the great New Zealand player and manager after whom the man of the match trophy is named after at Wembley. Lance Todd, when he was the manager of Salford, proposed changing to a summer season in the early 1930s, partly because Salford were competing against Manchester United and Manchester City. Uh, and he felt that, well, let's play in the summer and that you don't, we don't have the same problem anymore. But that really that became a um, uh, a popular idea in the early nineteen nineties, and I think certainly by the time you get to the Super League discussions ninety four ninety five, 
it's an idea whose time has come. And you know, regardless of whether Super League had happened and the Murdoch money had come in, I think the game probably would have switched to summer then. So, so there's a sense that the game has a number of problems, but people were looking for um, for solutions. There was also queries over the transfer system, and um, you know, questions over whether did could the game afford a transfer system, and um, should it move to a system such as there was in developing in soccer that time, where transfer fees became less important because it changed its transfer system. The other thing that had happened is that in 1992, the Premier League had been introduced into English soccer through Murdoch money. And so there was a, um, increasing calls for a rugby league version of that to happen, um, partly through selfish reasons of the top clubs because it meant they could get more TV money, uh, but also because it's seen as a, an opportunity to um, try and put the the whole of the game on a more professional footing. So there were lots of problems, but there are also a, a number of ideas that were being floated to try and set, try and deal with these structural ide- structural problems as well. And. The the discourse from I guess some of the you know Morris Lindsay and the the other you know club bosses at the time was we had no choice there was you know the money came that there was nothing we could do this was the way we were going to secure our future is there any argument that they could have resisted the money and and tried to go down a different path well let me put it like this the last TV deal that the rugby league uh, got from Sky before Super League was, I think, worth £3.5 million. The deal that they were offered, well, the deal they eventually accepted from Sky two years after that was £87 million. So um, it's difficult to turn down, particularly when there were no alternatives. Uh, I don't think that um, that Kerry Packer was going to fund a rival British competition to, to, to that extent. Um, so in reality, there was no choice. Interestingly enough, I mean, there is a story. Um, there is a story which I, which is true from I know from people who are at the meeting that uh, initial, the initial Sky offer, the Murdoch offer, was seventy seven million, and Maurice Lindsay put this to the uh, the famous emergency meeting of the, the rugby, rugby league clubs um, in uh, whenever it was April uh, nineteen ninety five. And of course, they all wanted to accept it straight away. Seventy-seven million pounds—it's you know, all our dreams have come true. Uh, and Morris, yeah, because yeah, um, he had slightly more acumen than most people running rugby league clubs. Said, "No, no, no. First law of negotiation—you never accept the first offer." And which is actually a good thing because that meant that um, the clubs had voted to accept not only seventy-seven million pounds, but also had voted to for the merger of most of the leading clubs in the game. So Widnes and Warrington would merge to form Cheshire something or other. Hull and Hull KR would have merged to form a single team. Wakefield, Castleford and Featherstone would have merged. So there's all these, ins- Bradford and Halifax would have merged. There's these insane ideas about merger, which the clubs actually voted for because they were so desperate to get their hands on the money without realising that it would actually have put their clubs out of business. And because Lindsay said, no, hang on a minute, we've got to, you know, we're not, I'm not going to accept the first one because, you know, that's not how you do business. Um, uh, that gave them some breathing space. Uh, there were massive demonstrations and protests that broke out against the mergers uh, immediately after it was announced. People, you know, de- you know demonstrations were staged uh, on the streets and on grounds. You know, people were protesting like mad that, you know, that there hadn't been any protest seen in the north of England that was uh, the equivalent of that since since the um, uh, the miners' strike of 1984-1985, which lasted a whole year. Um, 
So there was a lot of pressure from people to push back against the mergers. Um, and eventually the mergers were dropped. Um, and the deal was up to 87, uh, to, came to 87 million. So, no, I don't think they did have an alternative. They could have negotiated better. However, I do think there was a, uh, a massive opportunity was missed uh, by Morris Lindsay. Um, it would, um, I think, a, a if I'd have ever been in that position to do this, um, it was a golden opportunity to restructure the British game for good simply by um, saying that this is what the structure of rugby league will be like in the future. And um, if you if you want to be part of it, you can have your share of the £87 million. If you don't like that structure, that's fine. You can go and form your own competition. But this is what we're going to do. And I think that's also, also true uh, at a bigger level of um, really what Ken Arthurson and John Quayle should have done when they were... Um, when they're in the middle of this, fight. I mean, there's obviously it's much more complex than that because of the two, you know, the Pack and Murdoch rivalry and the way that rugby league was split between the two. But I do think on an international level, this was, and I hope no rugby union supporters are listening to this because uh, I'll destroy my credibility as a, a commentator on the history of both codes of rugby. Um, it was an opportunity for rugby league to say to Murdoch, look, give us some more money and we'll start an internet. Yeah, we can rebuild international rugby league and we'll start by signing, you know, some of the best rugby union players in the world and we'll have. You know, a, um, a second, maybe third New Zealand team based on uh, based on the All Blacks. Because remember, a lot of All Blacks like Jonah Lohman uh, began playing rugby league. Uh, Tanner and Margaret played for the played for the Knights. Um, that was a historic opportunity. We could have done the same in in Britain and in France um, if someone had have had a, uh, a broader vision and greater horizons than simply what was going to be the best deal for their particular club. So I do think that. I don't think the clubs had any choice, but I do think the administrators had a choice in the way in which that money was used, both at a British level and at an international level. And I think that's one of the great missed opportunities, yet again, of rugby league and that its parochialism and its inability to see beyond the short-term interests of its clubs, both in Britain and Australia, meant that it lost uh, some historic opportunities to not only change rugby, but change the face of uh, of rugby in its broadest term around the world. Leading to the famous quote at the time that some of the clubs had spent the money before it had even arrived, it, it just seems yeah. it, it, it again, a, a lack of that strategic planning and, and what is this game? What is our future? How are we going to build it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's... Be- I think that's because... Um, British and Australian rugby league, rugby league wherever it's, wherever it's played, has the same culture. Um, for a whole series of historical and social reasons, um, the same problems that um, the game faces in Britain, uh, oh, sorry, the, the roots of the way the game deals with the problems and the perspective it has on its problems are the same in Britain as it is in Australia, as it is in France. And you know, and you see in some ways the problems that um, the game has internationally in Tonga and Samoa with those two teams. Same type of problem, short-term, short-sighted administrators, inability to look beyond their own short-term interests. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's the... Yeah, and the same in Britain as well. Um, 
basically the money was used by and large to do exactly the same as they had done before, but spend more on doing it. Mm. I, I want to go back to the mergers because it's one of those things that it, it, it appears to make perfect sense. There's two whole teams. We'll make them one, you know. It should work, but it doesn't, just in the same way that South and East should merge here, but they never could. Was it, but clearly something needed to be done about, you know, the structure of the game and what were the best clubs to be in a Super League and, and where could they expand to? Was there a different way of doing it, of, you know, either coming to mergers or coming coming up with a different model? Is there a way that you could see that working? Um, well, I think you make a good point that on the face of it, if you look at it from a purely business point of view, then, yeah, um, mergers make a lot of sense. But again, it comes back to the point um, you spoke about earlier on about in terms of promotion and relegation. Um, sport is not just a business. It's about – it's uh, it, it has a social and a cultural and an individual emotional importance to people that mean that you can't run it as a normal business. So, so yeah, um, yeah. I'm a third-generation Hulkingston Rovers supporter. Um, the idea that Rovers would merge with Hull is, you know, absolutely... It's not only it's unthinkable, it, it makes no sense for the game because the rivalry between Hull and Rovers um, is a foundation of the game in Hull. And Hull is, you know, one of the biggest cities that have... where rugby league is... Um, I don't say the dominant game, but certainly the game that defines the city. I mean, there's a professional soccer team, Hull City, which you know got to the FA Cup final and the Premier League um, not so long ago. But the way that Hull people think, if you meet someone from Hull, outside of Hull, and they're quite easy to spot because we have a very distinctive accent, um, one of the first questions they will ask you is, Hull or Rovers? Who do you support? Um, which it struck me once when I went to um, first visit to Melbourne, that people in Melbourne ask each other, who do you bar it for? Um, obviously, I had no idea what they were talking about at the time, but um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, you know so so um, the idea that you could merge two teams and you're going to have a better team and one that you know you're going to have ten thousand supporters from Hull going to see and eight thousand supporters from Hull going to see doesn't work. You're going to have a worse team. You're probably going to alienate ninety percent of those eighteen thousand people who go regularly to watch Hull and Rovers, and you're going to set back the game. And the game is the game will lose its only. Intercity Derby, which is a big, you know, it's a big calling card uh, for a sport when you look at your, um, you, you know, your Blue Ribbon events. Um, yeah, and if you haven't been to a Hull Rovers Derby, um, uh, the only equivalent I can think of it from, from an Australian p- perspective um, is State of Origin in terms of the excitement and the intensity of the experience. Um So, yeah, so it, so it makes no sense. And to, you know, and, you know, to you know, take the example of to merge Castleford and Featherstone. It's the same thing. Um, they're two... Comp- the, the success of the clubs has, in some way, been built on that rivalry. You know, one of the ways in which you identify as a rubber supporter is that you're not a Hull supporter. And similarly, you know, if you're a Cast supporter, you certainly, you know, you, you certainly have nothing in common with, with Featherstone supporters. Um, so the idea of mergers, like the idea of scrapping promotion and relegation... It just goes against everything the game stands for. Um, so that, so I, I don't think that was ever a um, that was ever an option. Um, how the clubs for the Super League 
would have been, should have been chosen, I think, is another matter. Um, and that's quite a difficult question uh, to deal with. And um, it's difficult, you know, going, especially 25 years to think about how that would have that would have worked out because, we, you know, we know the story that some of the clubs in Super League, in the, that, the initial season of Super League, Workington, all them traditional clubs just didn't make it and are now, you know, sadly not, you know, they're playing in the... Um, uh, in League One, they're playing at the in the third tier of the game due to a whole series of issues. Um, but again, I think so. That sounds like a cop out. I'm not, but I don't want. To, yeah, yeah. I don't know which clubs should have been in. But I think it goes to the point that there was no strategic vision for the game. If the head had been in plan, said, "Look, how are we going to ex- how are we going to how are we going to expand the game? Do we even want to expand the game? Because there are a lot of people in the game who don't. And I think that's a legitimate strategy. I don't agree with it. But if you said, look, we're going to mark ourselves as the Northern sport and we're not going to be interested in anything outside of our traditional heartlands, then if you can make a strong case for it, then then good luck to you. Um, But we we don't even have that. Um, So there was no sense that, look, this is where we want to expand to. Do we want to have a team? Yeah, we want to have a team in London. Why do we want to have a team in London? Um, why was there a team in? Uh, why did Super League have a team in Paris? Not a traditional rugby league playing area. Not not really a traditional rugby union playing area for that matter. Um, you know, I can see there's arguments to have it. You know, have teams in major world capitals, and but that's a, that's not an argument that was advanced or a strategy that was ever taken forward. And I think that's the problem with Super League. That, as I said, basically there was no strategic plan that you know. Here's our plan. We drew it up five years later, and then amazingly, someone comes up and offers eight, offers us eighty million pounds. Let's implement the strategy now with this money. Um, and so it just led to uh, initially an insanely stupid plan that was never going to work and was uh, tore the game apart. And then led to a plan where we reverted back to what was uh, uh, basically what we'd always done, but a, but also antagonised people because of the threat of mergers, then antagonised Keithley, who should have been promoted to the first division and who in many ways had um, uh, had pioneered the modern marketing methods that Super League brought in, in terms of you know, calling himself Keithley Cougars, pre-match entertainment, in-match entertainment, you know, it all happened in Keithley uh, before it did anywhere else. And also, you know... Um, you know, effectively stop teams like Featherstone Rovers have any chance of uh, progressing. So, it, you know, we basically got the best, the, sorry, basically got the worst of both worlds from what happened. Seems to me that you, you mentioned Paris. Paris and that, that opening night against Sheffield, it, it's it's kind of emblematic of what we saw with Supling in the next couple of years. Like with this big splash and this, we're announcing ourselves, but like the, the Paris experience over the next couple of years might be the most farcical element of, you, you know, you could rattle off 20 farcical things that happened in that period, but the way Paris fell apart, like it, it was just ridiculous. Like what, what was going on there? <laughs> Good question. Um, uh, yeah. In fact, in fact, I was, I, 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 um, there's a book on the history of rugby league to be written that's called "What Was Going On There." Um, <laughs> yes. I, they were Super League was presented in a sense. Um, it, it looks quite good on paper. You, they Super League managed to get the opportunity to create a team in one of the uh, 
the capitals of the world, if you like, Paris, using the identity of a world-famous soccer club, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, and launch the game there. Well, that's a great opportunity. But um, there's a whole lot of other things that need to be in place. You need to be able to implement that opportunity, and it needs to be part of something else. And you need to think about how the... You know, so the immediate problem is that it's not a rugby league area. I mean, there is a little bit of rugby league, but it's even less of a rugby league area than, than London is. That's the issue. Uh, okay, so you th- think, well, no, we're going to have teams in capitals anyway because that's where the game needs to be and give it a big, uh, you know, a, a big international profile. But there's no plan to do anything else. Then you get down to the nitty-gritty, and I don't want to disrespect anybody here, but... It's my understanding that none of the administrators that were sent over to run the Paris club could speak French. Um, and that the only person who could speak French was um, um, Harry Jepson, who was a long time, a great guy, long time administrator of rugby league, uh, you know, lived until he was in his 90s, you know, rugby league through and through. But, and Harry was, I think at that point, was on the board of directors. Uh, and so he was sent over for a few weeks because he was the only person the rugby league knew who could speak French. So let's be realistic. That's not going to happen. Um, you know, not least because you can't speak the language and then also because how on earth can you make make anything work because you just look like, you know, um, British people, British tourists coming over trying to start something. So it was never going to work. And as you say, then it got ridiculous and it basically became, within short order, it became, you know, 13 expat Aussies uh, they couldn't even get va- the right visas. Yeah, I know. And yeah, and so you know, you could, in a sense, you could, you could see this as a um, uh, as ambition that overreached itself. Which you know, I think I, I can imagine. Yeah, I, th- I think Maurice Lindsay probably took it seriously. But again, it goes to a lack of experience and knowledge of how to do these things, and a lot of trouble could have been saved and a lot of money probably could have been saved and a lot and a much more long-term uh future being secured for french rugby league if they'd have included toulouse or um perpignan one of the clubs in perpignan something like that um but again we don't really know the full story of why this happened i mean you know the extent to which uh news corporation wanted paris to happen which they probably did because i mean and the opening night was fantastic and it was one of these occasions where you think this is it this is the future um, and it should have been. I mean, that's what rugby league should be like. It should be played in big, in big cities, in front of large crowds with big city teams. And that still should be the goal of the game. Just because it didn't work once, doesn't mean say it can't happen again. Um, but clearly, you know, once you start, the, the reality of it was paper thin. And once something went wrong, then the whole thing started to unravel. To mix metaphors. But that opening night did kind of set up a, a season that it, it seems that there was a lot of, of optimism and a lot of signs that it was, you know, that it was going to actually happen. Yeah, I, mean, I th- there was the opening night. And I think the other thing that, um, and actually I'm not sure whether this is the first or the second season, the other thing that I think made you think something, something could happen here is when London Broncos played uh, Paris Saint-Germain at um, I think it was Charlton Athletic Soccer Ground, the Valley, and the kickoff was delayed because of the number of people who were trying to get in. Um, and to imagine that could happen in a, a rugby league match in London, and this was a match between London and Paris, showed you that it actually, you know, things could happen. And this is the tragedy of it because I think that you know there are in rugby league 
uh, a lot of people think the game can never expand. We've tried it before. It's never going to work. Uh, let's just rain ourselves in and we'll just play M62 Corridor and Cumbria. But, you know, I think that's it. that ignores the the uh, the potential and the possibilities that have been demonstrated time and time again in the history of the game. Um, another example I always think was good was 1995 World Cup when England played Wales in the semi-final over the, at Old Trafford. There's something like 15,000 Welsh Rugby Union fans there. It was like being at a Welsh Rugby Union international, the singing and everything. And again, you thought, there's, you know, this is, there's, there's something going on here. And so, the, you know, and, you know, the classic example of where that was capitalised on was France in the 1930s. Similar type thing. People went to an exhibition game, were obviously blown away. Um, fortunately, they had structures in place and a lot of determined people who understood how things worked in France to make it happen. And that's what was lacking in in the 1990s. There were lots of examples, I think, where we could have made a breakthrough. Super League could have been uh, could have helped to do that, but um, we didn't really have, yeah, to hark on about it, a strategy to capitalise on that, or the the wherewithal, the know how, how to uh, lead a, a major sport forward in you know, in an era of rapid change in the sports world. So, is, is it fair to categorise your your assessment of it on there? There was weren't any like glaring mistakes it was just a, a like festering mediocrity in the administration and the way the game was run is, is that a fair thing to say um what you mean in terms of what super league offered yeah in, in terms of super league starting strong and then just not really going on with it yeah to some extent i mean i think again i think because what really happened was that um with the say with the exception of the paris thing um, basically, the same thing happened. Yeah, as I said before, the same the same thing happened as before, but they only but with the difference that they spent more money doing the same thing. Um, I do think. Um, I, I think two things, kind of side points. I think um, the fact that the protests of the fans changed the direction of Super League was very important because it it reminded administrators in rugby league of who the game really belongs to. Uh, and it demonstrated how passionately people still felt about rugby league and what it meant to their local communities and how they saw the world and and that you know that essentially hasn't really changed uh, since you know eighteen ninety five. Uh, the other thing that I think was important was the switch to summer because I remember when the the discussion first when it first came up in the early nineteen nineties I thought well yeah but is it going to change anything fundamental in the game and in a sense it didn't. Um, however, it did make going to rugby league matches much, much more enjoyable. And I, I, say, I, I say this as a veteran of standing on freezing cold night, uh, standing on terraces on freezing cold winter nights where you, by the time the game's over, you can't feel your feet or your hands, where matches are cancelled because the grounds are too hard, because it's too foggy, because snow started. So to, um, to stand on the terraces, uh, or even to sit if that's your thing, uh, on a warm, yeah, I know this doesn't happen very often in Britain, but on a warm summer's evening, uh, and watch the game being played on you know decent pitches, uh, where players you know aren't you know weighed down by mud, and where they've got the opportunity to display their skills in 
yeah, in the best surroundings is really great. And I think that, you know, that, so that has been something that has changed the game uh, for the better and probably fundamentally. I mean, although there are still people who want to go back to winter, I don't, I don't think that will ever happen. I don't think it should happen. And it also managed, I think, and it uh, it managed to give the game breathing space because in the in the in the early years of Super League, the late nineteen nineties, early two thousand, the game was under pressure from rugby union because uh, many in rugby union, particularly in Welsh rugby union, thought uh, because rugby union was now professional, as it went professional in nineteen ninety five, same time as Super League, they thought great it's payback time. We can go and uh, uh, buy up all the best rugby league players, just like they've been buying up our best players for the last hundred years. And I think if we'd have been playing in winter, head-to-head, I think we would have probably lost more players because a lot of players did go and play in the winter for rugby union clubs because of the amount of money that was offered, Robbie Paul, Gary Connolly, uh, players like that. Um, if we'd have been playing, if we'd have gone head-to-head to, with them in the winter, I think we'd have lost more. They would have probably gone permanently and you'd have had more Jason Robinsons uh, and Andy Farrells uh, going. But as it was, uh, then... You know, we came out of that fight, um, you know, relatively intact. Um, if it had been, if we'd have lost more players, I think then that would have led to a greater crisis of self confidence and more media pressure. So I think some, you know, inadvertently the switch to summer rugby also had an impact on the the, the struggle with rugby union. Um, just to finish up, I, I want to come to you know the present and uh, is it as bad as as it seems? over there like how worried are you about the, the future of rugby league in England um, well at one level I'm not worried at all because you know the game survived um, through 126 years of adversity economic collapse depressions wars pandemics and all the rest of it and it still survived and it went through Super League War where people you know say people demonstrating on the streets people weren't talking to each other and so the game will always survive the game will always be played um, I think the question is, um, how successful will it be? And I think that's another matter. Um, the game has not been able to come to terms with a lot of these structural problems. So, for example, the north of England, the, the where rugby league is strong, the place where rugby league has its foundations, um, has been hit terribly hard Um over the past 40 years by deindustrialization, there are no mines there anymore. Uh, there are hardly any factories. There's certainly no textile factories. You know, and it was mines and textiles that were the majority of rugby league uh, fans and supporters came from. There's no, um, there are no docks where you know, a significant portion of players and fans from Hull came from. Um, there's no heavy industry anymore in the north of England. So, so yeah, we've we've lost the the foundations of the game. Since 2008, since the uh, the great financial crash in 2008, the the North has become uh, much poorer and much more deprived. So it's the case that if you look at, of the 10 British uh, Super League clubs, sorry, well, 11 now, um, 11 British Super League clubs, I think um, eight of them are in the most deprived areas in the whole of Britain. So you've got a game where its strongholds are in the the places where yeah, you know, the the market can't really expand because people are just too poor, too impoverished to to spend in the same way that they can in other areas of the country. So so that's an issue. I think 
Um, another issue, going back to what we saying about Welsh Rugby Union, yeah, we've, although there are uh, some great Welsh Rugby players playing the game, um, including um, Regan Grace, sorry, his name, forget me, I'm getting old, uh, Regan Grace at St Helens, uh, Ben Flowers. Um, there are some great Welsh Rugby players. Um, it's We can no longer have the pick of the very best Welsh players because obviously there's more money on offer to them. So we've lost a significant... Um, pool of talent that we'd had for the last 100 years before 1995 and Union going professional. So we've not really come to terms with Rugby Union going professional either. Um, so so we have a problem where the heartlands are weakened and the opportunities for us to gain players from traditional areas have also been weakened. And of course, when play, when areas are uh, impoverished, it doesn't mean not only they not go play, pay to watch the game, they also um, really can't afford to play it. Um, and there's been a decline in sport in British schools for a long time. So, so there's a number of structural issues which the which the game really hasn't come to terms with, or at least come up with with answers to. Then clearly, there's a question of structure, promotion, and relegation. How's that going to work? What should the top level of the game be? Um, does it have an expansion policy? Who knows? I mean, the, you know, there was a, again, I don't know the full details, but there was a commission that was set up to look at Toronto by Super League, which decided that there was no market for, because there was no market for international rugby union in Toronto, there was no market for domestic rugby league in Toronto. So we don't, you know, which is just crazy. Again, it was an excuse to get rid of the team. So we don't know, you know, so there's been no real serious strategic plan about do we want to expand the game? If so, where do we want to expand it to? Um, uh, So there's a whole series of issues that resolve. So I don't think the game will die. I think the problem is that um, unless it comes up with some answers um, and a coherent strategy for the future, um, it will just stagnate. And it will, you know, carry on pretty much as it is now. And what that will mean is that it's it's uh, it, it will constrict not just in terms of expansion, but it will constrict and contract in its heartlands. And I think one of the reasons for that is because rugby league for people who are rugby league fans, and for people in the north who aren't necessarily fans but know about the game and respect it. Rugby league brings something different. It's both intensely local and community-based. So it says something about you either as someone from the north of England or for a lot of people outside the north of England who are rugby league fans, it says something about your kind of uh, relationship with society, that you're not really mainstream, that you might see yourself as a, a bit of an outsider, a bit of a renegade, a bit of an outlaw. It's a different type of sport. You're not really part of the national scene in a way that, you know, it has a kind of credibility to it. Um, and so if rugby league doesn't grow and doesn't try to stake its place on the national scene, the international scene, that idea that, you know, it's rugby league is a way of saying to the world, I'm different. I'm from the north of England. I'm a bit of a rebel. Uh, you know, I'm going against the grain, which is what every rugby league fan has in one way or another. That will start to decline as well. And I think, because one of the great things, stop me if I'm starting to ramble, one of the great things in the 1990s, or 1980s, 1990s, when rugby league could sign Welsh players like Jonathan Davis, 
was that this was really the game saying, look, you may look down your noses at us, rugby union, the media, the establishment, but we're capable of standing on, you know, standing up for ourselves. We can give as good as we get. We are, you know, uh, we're not going to back down. Uh, and that, you know, that which is basically the story of rugby league. That if you know, it's uh, if it had a back down, it would have gone under a long, long time ago. But you have to find ways of expressing that and expressing that essential nature of the game. And that there's a lot of ways of doing that, either through, you know, th- those type of signings which did it in the 1990s, uh, or by offering a, 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 um, a you know, showpiece game showcases that really you know lay out the um, lay out what you can offer and um, providing an alternative model of sport for the um uh in yeah you know, in a british and international market and i think that's in a sense again leaving aside the problems internal problems of the toronto wolfpack toronto wolfpack actually marketing themselves in toronto as a different sporting experience and i think that's something the game can replicate uh around the world and i think you know because it's rare where you can find top level professional sport where you know it's a look it also has that look, intense sense of community and locality i mean you know with the best one in the world, you don't feel that if you're a Barcelona supporter. Uh, you don't feel that if you're a New York Yankees supporter. Um, but in rugby league, you know, we're not the same league as that, but in rugby league, you do get that. So it, it is appealing. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's managed to spread to countries like Serbia. That it kind of expresses something about, and Lebanon, it kind of expresses something about, you know, how ordinary Serbians feel about the world or how ordinary Lebanese people feel about the world and their place in it. And that's what the game has going for it. I think that's what we've got to... Uh, that's what the game has to figure out a way of capitalising on, but also structuring the game so it can make the most of that and build on its, uh, you know, build on its strengths and um, um, solidify itself for the 21st century. Wow. That's a great note to end on that. That was, you know, brilliant words. Um, This, this has been amazing, Tony. Thank you so much for your time. I've, um, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are, just going to be blown away by the last couple of hours because uh, I certainly have been. So, uh, you know, and, and I also want to take the opportunity to just thank you for all you've done with, with your work over the years. It's certainly been very formative for myself. So, um, yeah, it's truly an honour to have spent this time with you. No, likewise. I, I've really thrown enjoyed it. I want to thank you for inviting me and give, giving me the chance to talk about this. And I, I think, you know, it's... Um, what you do with the podcast is fantastic because it, it's it's giving people who either you know live through the history or old enough to live through the history like me or people who don't know the history too young it gives them a sense of where the games come from and how it has survived because you know by all rights it you know there's several times when it it could have died and perhaps uh, you know it, it it you know logically in in business terms it should have died but it didn't it survived and I think that's the amazing thing about the game that rugby league you know. There's all sorts of problems and there's all sorts of things that everybody would change. But fundamentally, I think what keeps it alive is the fact that it's seen as it offers something different to other sports. As I said before, it was founded on a principle of equal opportunity. And I think that wherever it's played and regardless of the ineptitude, corruption or just sheer stupidity of some of the people involved in the game, that's what always comes through. And I think, you know... Rugby League in Britain is in a weak state at the moment. Uh, it probably will get healthier because you know th- there are enough people involved who want it to get healthier. Um, and I think that fundamentally, what it offers on the pitch and what it offers on the pitch, put it in a good position that you know 
just because it's failed in the past doesn't mean to say it's going to fail in the future. And I think there's a there's going to be you know there's a lot of changes in the sporting world. There's a lot of opportunities, and I think there's no reason to think that eventually we're going to capitalise on one or two of these opportunities, as we are doing in the Pacific, and maybe we can do the same thing in the rest of the world as well. And uh, and you know the game will eventually fulfil its potential. So thank you. Yeah. I really hope you're right about that. No. Uh, but yeah, thanks again, uh, Professor Tony Collins. This was a real treat. Uh, and, and with that, we will speak to you next week. <laughs>